and welcome to another episode of This Is HCD. I'm your host, Chi Ryan, and in this episode, I'm speaking to Liz Foslian, designer, illustrator, and co-author of the brilliant book, No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotion at Work. Liz spent the past three years empowering leaders at companies like Google, Facebook, and Nike to create cultures of belonging in which employees feel safe taking risks, asking questions, and putting their ideas out into the world. Science shows that employees who feel a sense of belonging at work are happier, more productive, and healthier than those who work in cutthroat organisations. Liz's focus is on actionable ways individuals at any company in any role can build culture where they feel they belong. In this episode of This Is HCD, Liz and I talk about the events that led up to her and her co-author Molly West Duffy writing this book, how they manage working together for the first time on a real live side project, tips on how to work together better with the people around you, and being cool with embracing our emotional side. Welcome to the show, Liz. Hi, thanks so much. I'm very excited to be here and speak with you. And we are very excited to have you here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I am an author and illustrator. Um, I just co-authored the book No Hard Feelings with my friend Molly West Duffy. And then I also illustrated it. And I, for the past three years, have been working, designing, um, and facilitating workshops for Fortune 500 executives. And a lot of those are around how to build a culture of belonging for every employee, kind of in any role. So on the book, why don't you tell us a little bit about the book itself? What's it about? So the central idea of the book is that this traditional notion that you should check your feelings at the door when you come into the office is biologically impossible. Um, we are emotional creatures regardless of circumstance. So you're going to have feelings at work. But then once we let feelings into the workplace, since that's something that no one has really been taught how to do since for so long, I think everyone's heard this message of to be a professional, you should not show any feelings. The question then becomes, how do you show feelings in the workplace? You know, it's not a place where you can just have a total meltdown in front of everyone. Um, so what's the right balance of expressing emotion in the workplace while still, you know, maintaining credibility and not bulldozing over other people's feelings? It's super important in the design realm, I think, because design to me is a inherently emotional task and sometimes we're expected to take that emotion out when maybe there shouldn't be, but there's always a lot of opinions in, in design and when you're designing. I think it's interesting that, you know, you're working with such passionate people. They just love what they do so much. To try to take the emotion out of it, it's, it's impossible. You can't. Yeah, completely. Um, I mean, I think I definitely had this in writing and illustrating a book that there's a cycle too to where you feel really good about your work and then you've been staring at it for days and suddenly everything seems hopeless and you dislike everything you've ever created. Um, so I think that's just talking to other designers. I think that's something a lot of people go through. And so in the book, we would just encourage people like you're going to have your own internal emotional journey, but it's still really important to make sure that if you're in one of those periods where the work is hard or you're just not happy with everything that's happening in your work, that you don't take it out on other people and that you just find constructive ways to manage that both for yourself and for your colleagues. 
I think separating the emotions of the work that you're doing, the thing that you're creating and the emotions around that from the emotions that might be around you or brought up because of your workplace, those two things are an interesting juxtapose. And they, they overlap. And that's, I think that's something that you talk about in the book. There's a few diagrams that illustrate that. Before we get into that, could you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write the book? So Molly, my co-author and I, we both had experiences pretty early on in our career where we were working at stressful jobs and really both believe that you should not have any emotions at work. And so as we became more and more stressed, we didn't even know that there might be ways to manage that. We had no idea how to maybe talk about it with other people. And so for me, I started to get sick a lot. And then Molly started to have like extreme head pain. And a doctor told Molly that it was because she was just so anxious and wasn't able to like channel that anxiety or manage it on her own. And, and also, like, as you mentioned, jobs can be very stressful. There are some work environments that just like, are going to make you anxious because of the way it's structured or, or the processes in place. And so the book really is a lot about that experience and which, which for both of us caused a lot of reflection of both in that, in the jobs that we had, what was missing in those jobs that we wanted in our next job. And then also what could we have done that, might have helped us, you know, just at least be a little more emotionally healthy in whatever environment we're in. And so the book is really trying to give people one permission to just not always suppress emotion, but instead acknowledge it, like admit that you're feeling it. And then you can start to do the work of examining what that emotion might be trying to tell you. And then also giving them some tools like, you know, there are times in your life when the work environment will be hard or your work will be hard. And and what do you do in, in all of those to, to stay emotionally healthy? What was the process like when you were writing the book? Were you were you working at the same time? Was it a side hustle type situation? So we both were working and then I have taken kind of the last few months to just focus on the book and, and the promotion around it. But yeah, I think it was really a labor of love. We spent a lot of time on the weekends, on the phone, or just, just passing drafts back and forth. So we were both working. You mentioned in the book, that there were times where working together on the book, you had to figure out how to work together. Could you tell us a bit more about that? So we were good friends before we started on this project. We definitely were worried that, you know, you hear all these horror stories of friends who start working together and then their friendship implodes. So we were both very open and we made it clear at the beginning, like if that ever starts to happen, we need to just talk about it. And what we did realize though was that I think it was about three months into the process of writing the book. I mean, we were on the phone. We were like emailing every day multiple times. We would usually talk maybe once or twice a week for a long time on the phone. So we were just interacting with each other constantly. But then we realized that we had no idea what was going on in the other person's personal life because our interactions had become just about work. And so it felt like we were really close. And yet I just realized I was like, what is Molly doing? Like, how is she feeling? How's her husband? How's her life? And so after that, we said, whenever we get on the phone, the first 15 minutes, we cannot talk about the book. We only can talk about our personal lives just to make sure that we're still building in time to maintain our friendship. Why I think hopefully the book is very affectionate and lighthearted is that it was written by two friends who also really enjoy working together. Um, so we definitely took steps 
to preserve that friendship. We also we used the spreadsheet. So we had a list of 10 things. So it was like, I'm feeling good about my contribution. I'm feeling good about the other person's contribution. I feel happy about the direction that the book is going in. And then we would each rate how we felt on a scale of zero to 10, 10 being the highest. But we would also rate how we thought the other person felt. So I might say like, I think Molly is really happy about the direction the book is going. So I'm going to write 10. And then we would swap spreadsheets and see what the other person had actually written. So if I perceived that Molly was at a 10, but Molly had actually written a 4, that meant there was a really big gap between what I thought she felt and what she was actually feeling. And that would highlight that there was something there that we had like very much miscommunicated and that we needed to take the time to talk about that. Um, so I think also just making our feelings explicit and writing them down. Um, I think it's just so important to carve out time for the personal aspects of a relationship and then also to carve out time to, to just check in on each other's feelings. I mean, so much of the feedback we get from people is, I know it's important, but it just seems like when there's deadlines, there's no time and, and it's a waste of time and money to have like a feelings check-in. And it's really not. It doesn't have to take a long time. Just five, ten minutes, um, you know, once a week, twice a week can save you a lot of grief because you don't want to be six months into a project and suddenly realize that everyone's been harboring a lot of resentment um, that's been slowing the work down when you could have just addressed the problem months ago and have it be a non-issue. How do you think that you can carve that time into your own, I mean, you can carve it into your own work processes and your own way of working. If you're someone who is maybe managing other teams, how can you carve that time into what you're doing? So we really recommend a great time to do this is at the beginning of a project or at the end of a project, because those are kind of natural points for, I mean, at the end for reflection and at the beginning for setting some expectations. So I think it's really about bringing the team together and maybe taking half hour to an hour, whatever feels good, and having people, everyone answer just some questions. So some of the questions we have in the book, um, a lot of it too is just about kind of greasing the wheels of communication so that you don't accidentally, you know, bump into each other's feelings. So questions to have everyone answer is what's the best way to communicate with you? Are you an emailer? You know, would you rather get feedback in person? What are some honest, unfiltered things about you? What are things that people might misunderstand about you? These are just, again, ways to make sure that you have a full understanding of the other person to, again, avoid miscommunication. And then at the end of a project, I think it's really good to ask, you know, what happened here? What could we have done better? What didn't go so well? And then one question, too, that each person can ask is just to say, what do you think if someone's working with me on another project? What do you think they need to know about me that would be useful in working with me? Yeah, it's like a set of rules for emotional engagement almost. Exactly. And it's, again, so much, I think so much workplace misunderstanding arises because we haven't taken the time to just quickly get a sense of the other person's preferences. And, and a great example of this is like introverts and extroverts. If you don't know that someone's an introvert, and you're an extrovert, you can drive them crazy by just always wanting to talk and always popping in and always asking questions. And you have the very best intentions. But because you don't know about their communication preferences, you're probably actually going to make them feel completely drained and exhausted at the end of the day. 
It's interesting because it feels like a lot of the time, especially, I mean, and especially in design, we tend to just focus on the work and we don't necessarily think about all of the things that you have to take into account that happen around it. And it's where you draw a diagram. It's almost like what I think my work is, but what my my work really is. Oh, yeah. And it's the pie charts of there, you know, and, and realistically you know, 99% of what you do is probably actually a bit more like all of the, the other stuff. And then it's, you know, the maybe not 1%, but maybe 10% of the time is is actually doing the thing that you're supposed to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think that, you know, when it comes to feelings, like there is a lot of stuff that you need to do that's not strictly the work that will actually help the work get better. Um, but yeah, definitely. I think the diagram is the one that's like, I thought work would be working and then work is actually like going to lunch, checking email, printing, having printer problems, having email problems. Yeah, or just um, talking so to people. Just Right, exactly. Yeah, communicating, emailing, yeah. That's actually something I find personally is that a lot of my time is just spent talking to people and it's something that's far less acknowledged In even though it seems obvious when you say it out loud. It's not always acknowledged as much. Of course, when you go to work, what you do is, you know, the work, but actually there's a lot more to work than the thing that you do. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You talk about seven rules or guidelines for thinking in this way or, you know, guiding you through thinking this way. Do you want to tell us a bit about how you got to those seven rules? That's a good question. I'm trying to think back on, we knew we wanted to write about emotions at work And so we did kind of, we started with just a sweep of all the literature. So that's both academic literature, articles that we had read at one point and really loved and that resonated with us. You know, people like Adam Grant, who are really leaders in the space, and Susan Cain, who wrote Quiet, um, what they were talking about. So we had this, I think it was like a 50 page Google document or something like really crazy, just listing all the ideas and all the things we wanted to talk about. And then went through multiple iterations and kind of what came out of all of that was that we could bucket all of these ideas into the seven aspects of work. And so in the book, those are health, motivation, decision-making, teamwork, communication, culture, and leadership. Um, And so I think it was really just a process of moving things around Again, figuring out these like buckets that we wanted to talk about uh, and, and kind of what best fit into those buckets. And then once that, that became clear, it also just made sense as a, as a framework for the book of emotion affects everything you do. It's going to affect every aspect of your work. And so we should try and cover the main aspects of work. So yeah, it came out of, of, of a review of everything that was being written about that we also wanted to talk about. And then it, it kind of made sense that it would just be like a quick comprehensive look at at the central aspects of, you know, being an employee somewhere, even if it's for yourself too. Another thing that I, that struck me about the book is the fantastic quizzes and and anecdotes you've got in there. And on your website, lizandmolly.com for everybody who's listening, uh, you've got some of those assessments. How did you land on those? Assessments, some of them are you know, do you feel a sense of belonging at your organization? What is your emotional conflict tendency? Some people are, you know, seekers and they seek out disagreement. So they're the ones that really love to have intellectual debates, that love to always question. Um, And then there's avoiders who just 
do not want to experience conflict and they will do anything to avoid getting into these disagreements. Um, and so, so for example, that assessment will help you figure out which one of those you are more often. Um, and the assessments were really a way of, so first and foremost, we wanted this book to be really practical. I think especially in with emotion, you know, it, we, we just wanted it to be something where like, here's high level, what's going on in your brain, what's going on in your body, what might have triggered it, but then what do you do with that? And how do you talk about that? And so the assessments are really intended to help you learn the vocabulary to talk about your tendencies, but then also kind of give you greater insight into your own emotions and your own emotional state, and then also within your organization, what might be going on. So I guess with the assessments, did you apply this thinking to yourself along the way? Were you testing these assessments on yourselves as you went? Were these tools that you were using to essentially eat your own dog food? <laughs> kind of. I, th- I mean, I th- so the assessments we created towards the end of the book process because it was really a culmination of all the research we had done. But kind of earlier on, you know, Molly and I were friends again, and we hadn't worked together in a professional context before writing this book. So we did, we didn't take the assessments because we hadn't writ them, written them yet, but the topics of the assessments became really relevant to us. And it was this kind of very meta process of we're writing a book about the emotions of working with other people while working with each other on a thing that makes us emotional. Um, and so we... I think one of the earliest ones was again about this, what's your, what's your preferred conflict style? And I would say that Molly is probably much more of an avoider and I'm more of a seeker in that I really like to get feedback in the moment. I like to talk about it. You know, if there's something that someone thinks could be better, just tell me right away so I can course correct. And Molly very much prefers to get feedback in an email so that she can digest it and think about it and then talk through it at a later point. Um, But she wants to have that time to reflect on it by herself. And so that's something that we kind of naturally had to figure out. Uh, And I think it was that I was just like sending her all these emails, like different emails with like random pieces of feedback about the writing. And then she finally was like, you know, I would just prefer one thing uh, and maybe you can write it all up. And so we just had to figure that out. But but underneath all that was this willingness on both of our ends to be very open about our preferences and just always be open if the other person said like, hey, I want to talk to you about this, even if it's just something like I remember Molly once called me and said, this is not an issue yet at all. And I'm not upset with you, but I think we should talk about this just to make sure that it never becomes an issue. And I think that was such a great thing on her end to do. Um, so just if you if you notice someone about someone else's tendencies and it hasn't become an issue yet, but you think it might, just flagging that and being like, hey, you're doing this, like I prefer to do things this way, just want to let you know, not an issue yet, uh, but it's, it's just good for both of us to be on the same page. It reminds me a little bit of the book Radical Candor. What are your thoughts on on that type of approach. Yeah, I mean, I love that book. And we interviewed Kim Scott in in our book. So she talks a lot about, you know, challenge directly, but care about the person personally. Um, and I think that that's like a wonderful structure. Uh, in, in the interview that we did with her, one of the things that she told us that I, it's one of my favorite quotes in the book, and it's about feedback. Um, and so again, some people prefer to get feedback verbally in the moment, 
Others prefer to get it, you know, over email. And she said that your words, the effect of your words, that it's not measured at your mouth, but it's measured at the other person's ear. So you really need to treat people not the way that you want to be treated, but the way that they want to be treated. So you can, again, have the best intentions, but if you're not aware of, if you don't care personally about that, about that other individual and understand like how they want to hear the words, um, then again, you're just, you're probably going to butt heads, even if both of you have really wonderful goals and, and care a lot about each other. She tells a story about being told that she said, I'm um, a lot. And it was a story that made me laugh because I had a, a boss who told me once that I said, I'm um, a lot. And thinking about what you just said, what you say is measured at the ear of the other person. That kind of feedback can be really hard to take and taken very personally. Totally. Yeah. But when someone says it in a way that is meant to be caring, but, you know, when you think about it, being something that they said because they really deeply care about you and they want you to be your best, you can look at it in a different way, but it's very, very difficult to do uh, because we're almost, we're almost, con- well, we are conditioned to to take things personally, especially when it comes down to something so personal as the way that you speak. So something that I think is very interesting when it comes to feedback, feedback is a huge part of design and um, it can be very painful when feedback is personal. But I like to try to help people understand that, you know, particularly when you are designing something that doesn't belong to you, a little bit different when you're making a book of your own to take feedback. But uh, when you're making something for a client, it's not for you. It's, well, hopefully for the people that you're designing for, but also for the client that you're working with. And so sometimes with feedback and design, there are ways that you can take out that taking it personally aspect and focus on it being about critiquing what it would be like for whoever it is that you're making it for rather than for yourself. And uh, it's not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing to retrain your brain to think that way, but um, a very important practice nonetheless. So you've worked with lots of big organisations in this space. What's that been like? It's been... It's been interesting. Uh, I think that at any big organization, you know, there's, there's so many different emotional cultures that can exist within a large organization. So emotional culture is just the small gestures and signals that people give each other and how those all aggregate to create a feeling. And, and I think if you've ever walked into let's say you work at a big organization and you've walked into like a different floor or a different area of the office and it just feels different. Like there's maybe different things on the walls or people are just interacting. Maybe they're not saying thank you to each other. Maybe they're like talking a lot and in your part of the office, it's very quiet. Um, So I think one thing in big organizations is just trying to navigate all of those different emotional cultures and, and, and keeping an eye on how they form and making sure that they're healthy for everyone. And it's totally fine to have different emotional cultures. I'm in San Francisco. So something I hear a lot is that in open office floor plans, the area where the engineering team is, is very quiet and people really value that, that quiet time. And for the sales team, they're on the phone a lot. They're usually much more extroverted. They're talking, they're goofing off. Um, and that's totally fine. I think that's probably the best environment for both of those types of people. Um, and, you know, not to make broad stereotypes, uh, but this is just a trend that has emerged um, in p- 
places I've been and people I've talked with, but just also making sure that they're not, if they sit in close proximity to each other, that you're still carving out maybe spaces within the office for people to go if they want quiet time that they're not getting when they're sitting, let's say an engineer is sitting right next to a salesperson. Um, so that's something that's really struck me is, is just all the different emotional ecosystems that exist within one organization. And, and I think a good leader is able to navigate between those and make sure that, that people are, are getting their emotional needs met. It's a little bit of a, a segue, but interesting to me because it's personally dear to my heart. How much do you think that the space that you're working in plays when it comes to emotions in the workplace? Yeah, I've looked a lot at or, or talked a lot with executives too about creating a culture of belonging. And so in the book, we define belonging as, so it's, it's different than diversity and inclusion. So diversity is having a seat at the table and then inclusion is having a voice at the table and belonging is having that voice be heard. And belonging is so crucial to financial success, to innovation, to people feeling good on a team. Because if you have a bunch of different people in the room, which is optimal because you want people to bring in their unique experiences, you want people with different skill sets who view a problem from a different, from different perspectives, um, to get to the best possible result. But if you're not creating a space in which those people feel valued for everything that makes them unique and not only valued, but feel safe throwing out those ideas or even flagging a problem, um, then you're missing out on all of this amazing information that is contained within each person. And so that feeling of belonging is extremely emotional. It's based on emotion. Um, and that translates so much to how you behave in a meeting. And then that translates into what ideas the other people hear from you. And that translates into like what goes into the final product. And that translates into like what you present the client. And that translates into like, does the client stick with you or not? Um, so I, th I think, you know, obviously I'm going to flag my bias because I wrote a book about <laughs> emotions at work. Um, but I think so much is profoundly impacted by just how we feel in an office space and around the people that we're working with. Do you think that there's anything in your experience that you can do in the actual physical space to make it feel better for people? I think it, depends on your organization. So it, it, you know, I think people do have different preferences and in some sense they will maybe like opt into careers that better suit their preferences. So one example I'll give is I studied economics and math and then worked um, as an economic consultant. And there I think people tended to be very data driven. Um, they really valued intellectual discussion and, and, but also were probably like a little more emotionally reserved and that's completely fine. But I think what you can do in a space for those people to make them feel better is different than what you can do in a space for people who like are very emotionally expressive, um, who want to talk about their feelings, who want to be super close and very vulnerable with their coworkers. So generally, I would say just getting a sense. So let's say that you're a manager, getting a sense for um, what the preferences are of the people of your team in general, and then also of the individuals on your team and then helping them, giving them the tools to create that space for themselves. So again, I think that's if you have an introvert on your team and they consistently tell you, like, I think I would just do a lot better work if I had a little more quiet time. 
Um, I know one company that I spoke with, they got that feedback from a lot of introverts. And so they created like, they turned a few conference rooms into just quiet rooms where introverts could go and work and you just weren't allowed to talk in there. And that was really nice for those people. Um, and then in the book, more broadly, I would say for, this can apply to, to any organization, um, to really be mindful of your micro actions. So micro actions are these small gestures and actions that we take that really can make people feel welcome in a space or in a group. And so examples of that are, you know, learning to pronounce someone's name correctly. And this sounds like such a basic thing, but it's a huge thing. So one story we heard was um, there was an executive and he was leading a team on a project and he really wanted, he was like trying to make everyone feel a sense of belonging. So he would address everyone in the meeting, he would look them in the eye, and he would really try to facilitate equitable discussion. And a few weeks into the project, one of the senior designers pulled him aside and she said, I know that you really want to involve everyone in the conversation, but you address everyone by their first name and you've never said my name. And I think it's because you don't know how to pronounce it. And so my name is pronounced Karishma. And then she was like, so again, I know you have the best intentions, just wanted to let you know. And he realized that she was absolutely correct because he had never taken that like split second to just be like, how do you pronounce your name? He was afraid of mispronouncing it and therefore wasn't addressing her by her name. And so imagine if you're in a meeting and someone is like, Sally, what do you think? John, what do you think? Hey, you, what do you think? <laughs> you know, it, it feels, it make it definitely, it sends some kind of a signal and it doesn't make you feel like you're really, truly part of the group in that moment. Um, so just being so mindful of these little things, spelling people's names correctly when you email them. Um, and then, you know, if, if you're sitting at lunch and someone sits down at the table, just taking like the 10 seconds to pause the conversation and be like, hey, here's what we're talking about. Just wanted to catch you up. I think, you know, someone has done that for me and it's just such a wonderful way of like feeling really, truly invited into that conversation and into that space. Actually, when we first spoke, you mentioned that and um, ever since I've been really aware of doing it, I've been trying to, every time I'm having a conversation with my team and then one of them enters the conversation, I stop and say, okay, this is what we're talking about. Da, 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 oh, da, da, that's great. Yeah. yeah. So I, that's wonderful. And it, it seems to, I, I think it genuinely does make people feel more included. Uh, recently, over the last few months at my studio, We've gone through some changes and, and one of the big changes is that the studio that we have, it's not huge, it's quite small, it can fit up to about 25 people and uh, when I first started there, it was actually quite quiet but what we've done over the last few months is uh, handed the responsibility, if you like, over to the team in terms of how we use the space and what we do in it, where they sit and and we've we've changed some things around. We, we had this big round table that was in the middle of a common space that you could sit at for lunch and you could have meeting at if you'd like. And it was really hard to use actually, this round table. It was pretty terrible. So we got rid of that and we got some high tables that are a bit, they're square and you, you'd sit at them with bar stools. And we got a few of those and now you can reconfigure that space into all kinds of things, into a workshop space and into a space that you can have lunch at and we use it all the time for team meetings now and um, by doing some really simple little changes that, that weren't 
costly. They, they were pretty uh, low cost, in fact. What we've done is not only given ownership to the team when it comes to our studio and the way that we use it, but we've actually made it more functional and people are people are being more social in, in different – there was dead areas in our studio uh, where people just wouldn't sit and um, we've tried to really set about some things as well as some rituals, some cultural rituals where we use those spaces in different ways and those things have helped a lot to really change the dynamic of our studio. Yeah, that's a wonderful example. I think that the combination of the space itself, the physical space and the emotional space are really important, which that was what I was thinking about actually, that it makes me think that there's something, and I may, maybe I've heard this before, but something along the lines of emotional design where we're actually thinking about people's emotions and trying to weave that into the way that we design. Yeah, so I, I can't claim to be an expert on this at all, but uh, I think that's often what experienced designers too. So let's, let's say that you're designing a conference. Um, for a lot of these events, there's an emotional arc that you want people to have. So you, you know, if, if you want them to, to bond and to, to just set the tone of like, this is going to be an event where you get to know people and we want you to be human as opposed to like just throw your title around and like wear a name badge and have this be a networking event. Um, and this is so some of the workshops and conferences that I've facilitated and organized, this is something that we really do, which is how do you start off the, the experience on the right emotional foot? And so that's, we usually try and bring art into it. Um, we have people do something like goofy on their name tags instead of having just the traditional, like, you know, name affiliation title. I think there's so much that can be done around space uh, to make it feel really inviting. One of the examples we have in the book, too, is just think about if you walk into a conference room. And so imagine two scenarios. So one is that there are signs that have been printed out on the walls that say, like, don't leave your trash on the table, don't jam the printer, don't print more than four pages. So there's all very, like, admonishing signs. And then compare that to, like, if you walk into a room and it maybe has a smiley face on it and says, like, we love a clean room. And then there's a few photos of employees at an activity day. It just those really small touches create two very different feelings the moment that you enter a space. So it's, it's like a fascinating, fascinating domain um, of how do you also engage all the five senses. I remember hearing one experienced designer talk about one of the most underutilized senses in creating an emotional experience is smell. And so it's one of the kind of the, the fancy, like a Four Seasons-esque hotel, and they have a very specific scent that they use in all of their hotels. So the moment you walk in, you just know where you are, no matter which part of the world you're in. Super fascinating, just like the little tidbits that I've heard or some of the stuff that I've worked on. I'm always curious to learn more about that. Well, as an experienced designer, which is a funny term, and, and I think it's hilarious because I also am of the belief that you can't design experiences, you can design for them, which is a kind of weird thing about experience. But, you know, when I'm thinking about the example that you gave of a meeting room where there's signs that are sort of negative, oh, don't do this, don't do that. And then you could flip that and say, okay, well, you know, make it positive make sure you you know make sure you're putting your trash in the in the trash can because you know we we want to have a great environment as an experienced designer one of the when it comes to trash cans sometimes in in 
you know, certainly in open plan offices, there's not enough trash cans. And so there's this, there's been this movement to, hey, we're not going to have trash cans anymore because we need people to recycle and we need people to put all their, their things in the right place. But what really needs to happen is we need to be more um, mindful about how we design those things too. So having accessible tools let's say, for people to use that get them to do the things that you want them to do. So, for example, put their trash in the places that it should be or put if it's recycling and getting them to recycle in the right way, making sure that you're telling them the right message about how you do that, that's incredibly important. It, it actually makes – that makes me think about when you go to a uh, – for example, a parking a parking garage and uh, you 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 know you go and you you go to pay and there'll be a machine there and there's one that I can think of that I've seen and you go to pay and it's covered in signage to tell you how to use the machine I mean handwritten signage and you know stuck all over it because the way that it was designed originally didn't think about the way that someone was going to experience it, um, you know, and and so those frustrations that people have when they they try to use something and or it, it says a sign that you know don't use credit card or whatever it might be, um, you know these things could be fixed if we think about the way that people are going to do something up front rather than thinking about it later on and then sticking a sil- sticking a silly sign on it. So. What's next? Have you got any plans for another book or are you going to do something else now? I mean, another book would be amazing. <laughs> I think that's that's kind of a, a TBD. Uh, but next, I think, is really just launching this book and we're doing together and then separately workshops at organizations um, and, and, and writing a lot of articles around these topics. So I think right now it's really just, just seeing where that goes. Um, and yeah, hoping, hoping that, I mean, the, really the hope for the book is that it gives people tools to, no matter what their situation is, like help themselves be able to work through their emotional states a little, in a, in a, in a more healthy manner. And also, you know, just create, like, like we've talked about a lot, better environments for the people around them as well. One of the things we talk about in the book is that emotional culture cascades from you. And that's this idea that if you're putting in energy and you are like taking these small steps to make other people feel better, that it will also help you feel better because you're modeling good behavior. You're modeling what it looks like to be in an emotionally healthy work environment. Um, so that can go a long way. Again, the big caveat is if you're putting in a lot of work and you're not getting anything in return and you continue to feel miserable, like maybe you should quit that job. Uh, we, you know, we're, ne- we're not going to sit on the, sit on the never quit a job. It's always your issue table at all. But yeah, so I think next is really the book comes out February 5th. So just seeing kind of what happens there and, and hopefully seeing that it has a positive impact on people's lives. So we've established that design can be an emotional, passionate, frustrating, rewarding, glorious thing to do. If there was one thing that you took away from going through this process of writing this book and delving into this space, what what is it? What would you tell designers? I would say just to take the bad days as part of the process. So when I was earlier in my career, if I would have a day when I was anxious or when I didn't like my work, 
I would often, it would just cause me a lot more anxiety because I would worry that I was never going to like my work again or that I would always be unhappy. Um, and that's actually a really common kind of dirty trick that our mind plays on us called catastrophizing. And usually if you're using the word never or always, that's a flag that you, you've entered this territory where like self-reflection has become self-destructive. Um, and so now given all this research and also knowing that I think just experience of having gone through like the swings, the highs and the lows of creative design. You know, when I'm, when I'm having a bad day now, it's much more like, okay, today I don't like what I'm working on, but that's okay. I'm going to keep working on it and maybe that'll turn into something. Maybe I'll find some inspiration along the way. And most likely in a few days when I return to this, it'll look a lot better to me than it does right now. So it, it becomes more of like one bad day in a, in a series of other things as opposed to you know, like this thing that now I'm blowing completely out of proportion and spirals into me just like scrapping the project entirely. So yeah, again, really just like don't make yourself feel bad about feeling bad. <laughs> it's okay. You're probably going to feel better again soon. There's always tomorrow. There's always tomorrow. Yes. <laughs> you could always just have a nap and then yeah. <laughs> get up in the morning and, and start again. It's, yeah. It'll be fine. Yeah. Where can people buy the book? So they can buy it anywhere books are sold. Um, there's Amazon, your local bookstore, Barnes and Nobles. Again, it's, it's available February 5th. And yeah, we really encourage people to pre-order just to make sure that they, that they get it if they want to read it um, on February 5th. But it should be available wherever you prefer to buy your books. And where can people find out more information about you? I think the best place is our website, uh, lizandmolly.com. And that's L-I-Z and the word and, and then M-O-L-L-I-E.com. Well, it has been a pleasure to have you on the show and we wish you all the very best of luck with the book launch. It's fantastic and I feel very privileged to have been able to read it. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. So there you have it. Design is emotional. But remember, keep putting one foot in front of the other because there's always tomorrow. How do you deal with emotions in design? We'd love to get your feedback or thoughts on this topic. To join in on the conversation, go to thisishcd.com and register to join our Slack channel where you can get in touch. We use our Slack channel to shape future episodes of the podcast, as well as sharing interesting design-related content every day. You can check out more about Liz and buy No Hard Feelings via www.lizandmolly.com that's L-I-Z-A-N-D-M-O-L-L-I-E.com. And we'd love to read your reviews of Liz's book. Thanks so much for listening to This Is HCD. See you again soon.